morning, everyone. Uh, junior church, four years old through fourth grade. If you would, ah, I didn't tell you what to do yet. If you would come stand right here for a moment. Come on up here now. Four years old through fourth grade. Come on up here. Just stay right here. Okay, you don't have to look at all them. Yeah, that's fine. She said, oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I have to look at them too, I know. So I have a question. How would you describe a king? Wear a crown. That's a great idea. I wonder where you got that idea. Huh. Yeah. Okay, what else? What else does a king have or do? He has all the power. Yes. Okay, what, anything else? He can rule people, yes. He has a tower. I like that. Okay, a castle. Yes, a castle. Anything else about a king? Yes. He's rich. How many of you would like to be kings? Guys? Boys, do you want to be a king? They want to be queens. They're waiting to see if I'm going to say queens, right? You want to be a king? Okay. You marry a princess. So, guys, look for a princess. That's good. All right. All right, guys, you can go. Thank you. Yeah, that was the, uh. All right. So, the kids described it. Now, what about you? How would you describe a king? He has a tower. You can't use their answer no more. Okay. <laughs> He rules over a kingdom, so that means he's got a specific area that he rules over. What else? He's a dictator. That means he's the sole provider of rule and authority. Anything else? He's better than everyone. So he thinks. Yes. Um, would you say a king is royal? What does that mean? Elite. That was another what? Bloodline. Um, how many of you have royal kids? <laughs> you know where I'm going with that. A royal... Okay. Um, a king is a man who is the most important member of the royal family court of his country. He's considered to be the head of state of that country. What does the king have besides a tower or a princess? Money, land, somebody else, power, authority, would you say? <laughs> Four years old through fourth grade, and Alec can go to junior. <laughs> okay. Subject, sovereign, what? Yeah. Oh, he beat you four towers. Okay, I'm not talking to you guys anymore. What does a king do? He rules. He gives uh, matters of opinions and authority and judgments. Um, generally speaking, how do Americans feel about a king? Uh, none. They're off with their heads. We don't like them, okay? Americans don't like the idea of a monarchy because we are self-made, we are self-governed, and you can't tell me what to do. In the DNA of America is rebelism. We rebelled against all that, so it's part of our culture, our DNA. And yet, 
This monarchy is exactly what Scripture talks about so much. We're starting in a whole new series of, for the next three weeks, and it's all about the king. We've been looking at David this whole year. We're going to look at him all this time. And, and right now we come to this continental divide in the series of David. David's life has been sprinkled with accomplishments as well as disappointments. His life is gradually built towards this peak where we know he's going to become king. He's, all these things around, around him have just been happening and, and keeping him from what he needs to be doing. And last week we saw the sad, sad ending of King Saul. One commentator described King uh, David's life like a roof line. It's slanting from his first in, um, introduction. It starts off low and starts going up. It starts off low where his dad doesn't even consider him. And then it reaches the peak in his life when he is king. And Bathsheba is there. The rest of his life is a downward slope on the other side downward slide of one tragedy after another. In spite of David's public and personal victories and defeats, God still saw David and described him as a man after his own heart, a man after God's own heart. God chose David and took him from the sheep pen to the palace or the tower. He, he took him as a shepherd of animals to the shepherd of God's people. The first part of his life and reign was mostly modeled of integrity and character, but sadly and unfortunately, he wandered off that path of integrity and suffered numerous tragedies as a result. When we think of David, when I was taught about David, I always see this gleaming hero, the man after God's own heart, the slayer of Goliath, and the one who takes the throne. And he's one of God's greatest heroes. But as we're looking, my viewpoint of David, and maybe yours, keeps lowering as he was not that great of an individual. He struggled. He sinned. He was corrupt. When it was time for David to become king... Because of that sad uh, result of Saul, did he storm into the world and demand that everyone submit to him? Did he go and say, finally, King Saul's dead, everyone bow? One of the things that a lot of people say what it takes to be a member here, and, um, to be a member of the church here. And you have to agree and follow the, the guidelines of salvation as planned by, by Scripture. Uh, you have to submit to the elders so long as they are following Scripture. And you have to kiss my ring. No, no, we don't do the kiss ring. We uh, say that you must uh, give your time, talent, and treasures to the furtherment of the ministry here and bow down to any of the ministers. Why wouldn't you do that? Be book, chapter, verse. That was nice. Um, because we don't want to submit to a fallen individual. We don't want to submit to somebody who is sinful. We want to only look at Christ here. And did David go in and presume that role? I am now king. Bow. He was a sensitive man at this point and a man after God's own heart. And he stalled and waited for God's timing. 
Samuel anointed David to be the next king, but David ended up waiting 15 years to be that king. Can you imagine being told you're going to be the next king? You are going to be the ruler. And then for 15 years you run and hide so you don't die waiting for your job to come available. A lot of those years he was that fugitive. Last week, as I said, Saul uh, came to that end as the Philistines beat him, killed his three sons. He was critically wounded, laying there dying. He wanted his armor bearer to kill him, and, and that guy wouldn't even do it. So he rose up and fell on his own sword. Meanwhile, if you remember several weeks ago, David was in the Philistine army. And they were getting ready to go out to battle when the other Philistine generals say, hey, we don't trust this Israelite. Send him away. And so the king sent him away. This is the exact same battle. David was about to go into battle with the Philistines against Israel, the one where King Saul died. Instead, David went back to his uh, temporary home at that time of Ziklag. And to find it destroyed, he ran off with his men to go get back all the plunder in their family and bring them back. Three days after he gets all of their family and their wealth back from that plunder in Ziglag, the three days after Saul's death, David finally hears the tragic news. Now remember, they didn't have CNN or Fox News for him to watch, so it took a while for news to come. It had to be a special messenger. Today we're in 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 1. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's army camp. He had torn his clothes and put dirt on his head to show that he was in mourning. He fell to the ground before David in deep respect. Where have you come from, David asked. I escaped from the Israelite camp, the man replied. What happened? David demanded. Notice it says demanded. That means he is intense here. He wants to know what happened. Tell me how the battle went. Remember, David was also on the Philistine side there, and so he's got ties on both sides. The man replied, Our entire army fled from the battle. Many of the men are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. How do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead, David demanded of the young man. The man answered, I happened to be at Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the enemy chariots and charioteers closing in on him. When he turned and saw me, he cried out for me to come, and and I said, how can I help him? How can I help? I asked him. He replied, who are you? I am the Malachite, I told him. Then he begged me, come over here and put me out of my misery for I am in terrible pain and want to die. So I killed him. The Amalekite told David, for I knew he wouldn't live. Then I took his crown and his armband, and I brought them here to you, my Lord. This description of the end of King Saul is drastically different than what we looked at last week, which tells us a couple of things. Either the Bible is wrong, that it contradicts itself, Or this story from the Amalekite is a schemer and a liar. The Amalekite presents himself as a tragic figure. He tore his clothes. He put dirt on his head. He's this survivor of this terrible catastrophe. And and he comes up to David and he presents him what he thinks is this great news. He offers the insignia of royalty, soul's crown, and armband. 
that he just happened to grab as he fled the battlefield. David is first struck, not with the news that this guy is trying to bring, but the meaning of it. And I think David's response might have startled and maybe even chilled this Amalekite. Verse 11, David and his men tore their clothes in sorrow when they heard the news. They mourned and wept and fasted all day for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the Lord's army and the nation of Israel because they had died by the sword that day. I don't think that's what the Amalekite was wondering. He's thinking, man, if I bring this crown and this armband and I say, hey, you are the next king, we all know this, and here it is, King Saul's dead, now you can take it. And when he gives it to him, Saul starts, or David starts mourning Saul. In fact, the whole army, it says, started mourning and fasting on it. Why, why isn't he putting on the crown? Why isn't he acting like a king? What is this reaction? It's totally different, I think, than the Amalekite would have thought. Now look what David does. Verse 13. Then David said to the young man who had brought the news, Where are you from? I am a foreigner, an Amalekite, who lives in your land. Why were you not afraid to kill the Lord's anointed one, David asked. Then David said to one of his men, Kill him. So the man thrust his sword into the Amalekite and killed him. You have condemned yourself, David said, for you yourself confess that you killed the Lord's anointed one. How would you like that for being a messenger? Hey, I brought you the crown, the armband, here's the news, you're now king, and I get killed for it. I think the Amalekite expected to get a reward and maybe even a favor. But he, all he initiated was his own execution. Now, we need to know that the Amalekites were known to live in the region. They would have been taught all the things of Israel. They kind of were friends. They would go in and do work and uh, marketing with them. They would do all these things so they knew the things of Israel. They would have been taught not to harm or kill the anointed one, the king. Even Saul's own armor bearer would not kill the king. He refused to do that because of the laws of God. And the story doesn't add up here from this Amalekite. And David acts decisively. Verse 17. Then David composed a funeral song for Saul and Jonathan, and he commanded it be taught to the people of Judah. It is known as the Song of the Bow and is recorded in the book of Jashar. Your pride... And, o, and joy, O Israel, lies dead on the hills. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen. Don't announce the news in Gath. Don't proclaim it in the streets of Ashkelon. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice and the pagans will triumph in, or laugh in triumph. Oh, mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fruitful fields producing offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty heroes was defiled, the shield of Saul will no longer be anointed with oil. The bow of Jonathan was powerful, and the sword of Saul did its mighty work. They shed the blood of their enemies and pierced the bodies of mighty heroes. How beloved and gracious were Saul and Jonathan. They were together in life and death. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. O women of Israel, weep for Saul, for he dressed you in luxurious scarlet clothing and garments decorated with gold. Oh, how the mighty... 
heroes have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies dead on the hills. How I weep for you, my brother Jonathan. Oh, how much I loved you, and, and your love for me was deep, deeper than the love of women. And how, um, oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen, stripped of their weapons. They lie dead. It's not typically what you'd think of as a funeral, as somebody starts singing a song. But it is the message that is typical at any funeral. Uh, you can hear lots of stories about how good a person is when, when they die. Uh, there was this guy, a horrible person in his town, and everybody knew it. And when he died, the brother came and told the minister, I will give $10 million to your church if you say that my brother was a saint. This guy was a robber. He, he raped. He, he was just a very bad guy. But that's a lot of money. So the minister got up there. Always embellish things at a funeral, right? Tell him how good. And he said, well, this man was a saint compared to his brother. But we do that. We embellish things. We talk about how nice the person was, how loved they were, how they were always so great, he, even though none of us fit the bill of that. J David does that here. Catastrophe has struck Israel. The king is dead. His body has been desecrated. And such a reality must be treated with reverence and dignity. Amazingly, after all that Saul had done and tried to do to David, David does not belittle Saul or celebrate the death. Instead, he says three times in this, in this song, Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen. Three times it said it's first attributed to Saul, then to Jonathan, and it's repeated a third time, emphasizing the catastrophe this is for God's people. David's lament is a beautiful tribute to Saul and Jonathan and to Israel. So David grieves for Saul and Jonathan. He, he acts decisively against this Amalekite for the sake of Saul's honor because this man dishonored God by disobeying, and he dishonored the king, the crown. He has the man executed on the basis of this own man's testimony that did not add up. David commands the Amalekite be killed. David didn't have to have fact checkers check his story. He, he could tell that this was wrong. The evidence was in the story in the demeanor. And that's not the end of these events. Starting in chapter 2, verse 1. After this, after this song, after this fasting and mourning, David asked the Lord, should I move back to one of the towns of Judah? Yes, the Lord replied. Then David asked, which town should I go to? To Hebron. The Lord answered. David's two wives were, oh, I forgot her name, Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel. So David and his wives and his men and their families all moved to Judah and they settled in the villages near Hebron. Then the men of Judah came to David and anointed him king over the people of Judah. Here we see something. This is, again, we're seeing the pinnacle, the rise of David here. He didn't rush to the throne. Instead, he stopped and he mourned. He grieved. He didn't rush to take charge. He waited patiently. In this moment, we see once again David turned to God. This is why he's a man after God's own heart, because in this moment, he turns to God. He makes no move without God's approval here. He asks God, what is it that I should do? Should I do this or shouldn't I do this? And God revealed his plan. Begin your reign in Hebron. 
Now, if you look here on the map, uh, you can see this map. There's where Hebron is. It's that bottom one. It's just a few miles south of um, Jerusalem, which would be the real capital. And instead of going to the full capital, God starts him off there at Hebron. Maybe it's because it's the central city in the Judah area of Israel. It is the ancient burial plot of Abraham and therefore the city rich in sacred tradition. It's also where David earlier had been making raids and had shared his plunder with those people. So he goes to Hebron and is king. But how long? Verse 11, David made Hebron his capital and he ruled as king of Judah for seven and a half years. Wait, Samuel told him he was going to be king over all of Israel. Fifteen years later, he finally gets to be king, but only over half of it. And for seven and a half years, he's the king over half of it. He didn't become king over the whole nation. He's got a limited rule, limited reign. And yet, David, in this, he obeyed God. In the seven and a half years, we don't read where David complains. He doesn't appear anxious through this whole learning process before he has learned to wait on God. Now, during this time when he is king in Hebron, there are some satellite kings who are around the area who are fighting for control over all of Israel, including Saul's son, Ishbosheth. And through all of this, David not only obeyed God, but David waited for God. He waited patiently and carefully for God to take care of unifying this kingdom. This is how David began his rule. Chapter 3. That was the beginning of a long war between those who were loyal to Saul and those loyal to David. As time passed, David became stronger and stronger while Saul's dynasty became weaker and weaker. David isn't trying to fight He's obeying and he's waiting. And Saul's family and, and his dynasty are fighting to try and take control. And David's just standing ground and gaining in popularity and power while Saul's people are losing. All finally is starting to go well. If we stopped the, if the story here of David, this would be great. This would be a wonderful place to stop. All is going well for the king. All, all seems like his reign is going to be strong and wonderful here. And isn't it when you just have everything right? Everything's going well, and then you know what's going to happen. It's going to be knocked right out from underneath you. Look what happens. Verse 2. We just read verse 1. He's getting stronger and better. Verse 2. These are the sons who were born to David in Hebron. The oldest was Amnon, whose mother was Aenoim. From Jezreel. The second was Daniel, whose mother was Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel. The third was Absalom, whose mother was, wait a minute, that's a different name, Mekah, the daughter of Talmoi, king of Geshur. The fourth was Adonijah, Ninja, that's his name, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith. The fifth was Shephatiah, whose mother was Abital. The sixth was Ithriam, whose mother was Eglah, David's wife. These sons were all born to David in Hebron. What do these verses tell us? First, they don't know how to name people. Okay? 
Secondly, but more importantly, it tells us David didn't simply have six children here, but that he had six children by six different wives. I thought he was a man after God's own heart. It sounds more like David's a man after any woman's heart. That's what this sounds like here. This polygamy is one of David's dark spots in his life that is later going to come back and haunt him. According to 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 5 and 1 Chronicles 3, David had many other wives and concubines who bore him children in Jerusalem. We don't know about most of them. There's no telling how many wives and concubines and children David had. Those mentioned in Scripture, though, include 20 sons and one daughter. But he had more, or many more. Here we see David looked away from God. He waited. He waited. He obeyed. And when things were going great, he looked away. Keep that in mind because David's enormous family is going to become an important issue later on as we look at this. There's several interesting stories uh, going on in these first five chapters of 2 Samuel, and we're not going to focus on them because they have to do with other people vying for power and not really with, about David himself. Then we come to chapter 5, and we see David finally becomes king over all of Israel, chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, you were the only one who really led the forces of Israel. And the Lord told you, you'll be the shepherd of my people, Israel. You will be Israel's leader. So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel. And they anointed him king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in all. He reigned over Judah from Hebron for seven years and six months. And from Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah for 33 years. David has finally Reaching. He's finally become king. He's not only just part king over just part of the nation, over just Judah. Now he is full king over all of Israel. He had great power. He had the blessing of the Lord. Verse 6 and 7. David then led his men to Jerusalem to fight against the Jebusites, the original inhabitants of the land who were living there. The Jebusites taunted David saying, you'll... You'll never get in here. Even the blind and lame could keep you out. For the Jebusites thought they were safe. But David captured the fortress of Zion, which is now called the city of David. So David made his fortress, the fortress his home, and he called it the city of David. He extended the city, starting at the supporting terraces and working inward. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord of God's heaven's armies was with him. Then King Hiram of Tyre sent messages to David along with cedar timbers and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built David a palace. And David realized that the Lord had confirmed him as king over Israel and had blessed his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And it's finally looking good. He's, he's won his battles. He's built himself a palace. And we know that when things start looking good, when we think it's all got together and we've got it all figured out, that's when things unexpectedly happen. Just like what happened last week that we're all so tired of hearing about. I didn't watch the Oscars. I didn't even know they were on. Because I don't care. 
I think the Hollywood elite have worked to make themselves appear to be our kings and our rulers. They think they own us and they can tell us what to do. And they're above the rest of us mortals. I don't think they need any more accolades than they are already giving themselves. But I did see the aftermath of that one particular event where Will Smith made a very foolish choice. This famous actor walked up on stage and slapped Chris Rock because of a dumb joke. Will Smith, on the exterior, had it all together. His fame, his fortune, he's got all these good movies, and yet his home life is a wreck. His wife Jada has pushed to have an open marriage. If you don't know what an open marriage is, it means you stay married to somebody, but you get to date and have sex with other people, and you agree to that. Which an open marriage is a complete contradiction to the word marriage. Marriage means your relationships are closed. Nobody else can come in. It is solely these two. His reputation, um, Will Smith, because of this, as an actor is tarnished, his role as a husband is a failure. His role as a father is weak. Do you know what he won that night? Will Smith won the Oscar for the movie called, what? King Richard. Will's actions seem to be just like any other person who claims to be king. That's really what it is. And I know that's not what that movie's about. That movie's about a person, but look at the title. Just, Will is the king. He's got it all together. And yet, in stupid foolishness, he threw it away. You look through all the kings of, his, of the history in the Bible, how many of them, through stupid foolishness, throw it away? How many times in our own life do we set up our own kingdoms, and we're going to be the master, we're going to be the commander, and in stupid foolishness, we lose it all. All this comes back to what God says in Deuteronomy. The Israelites are about to enter the promised land. Um, God has led them out of slavery. They had a bad king, the Pharaoh. They're finally entering the land that is flowing with milk and honey. That's all this prosperity. There's going to be food. There's going to be just so many great resources. But listen to the warning that God gives his people here in Deuteronomy. You're about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you take it, when you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. He must not accumulate large amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. There is a lot here in this scripture. This warning. And while this was said to the Israelites many, many years prior, the mentality that God is addressing 
is still present, not only from the time of Deuteronomy to the time of David, it's also present in this room today. Selecting a king is an important task. A king is supposed to be there to protect his people, to provide for the people. And generally, Americans, we discard the notion of having a king, and yet more and more people want to leave behind the foundation of the Constitution, turn to socialism so we can have somebody tell us what to do, give me what I need, and take care of it all, so, which is really just a dictatorship, monarchy style. It's what we don't want, and yet, even here in America, we're craving and wanting it, demanding it. So these verses really do apply to us. Look what God says in these verses. God gives warnings about kings to his people. You may think we should select a king to rule over us like other nations around us. When that happens, when that verse pops up, when we start thinking we should pick this, it is a sign. If this happens, it's a sign of the heart of the people. Why do they want a king? To look like the nations around them. When people want a king like other kings, it shows they are looking around and not looking up. At that point, they're not looking at God as their leader. So if this happens, what should we do? God gives some strong standards, though, to choose their king. Be sure to select the king, the man... Um, to select his king, the man the Lord your God chooses. Not the one you vote for. Not the one who is popularity. You pick the one that God has already chosen. Television has radically changed politics. Now, I grew up in an era where there was multiple channels on TV, okay? Um, now, it was before remotes. I was the remote control TV, mom would say, go turn the channel. And so that was how the remote was. I've always known politics on TV. Uh, but in 1959, which some of you remember, a young senator wrote an article for the young magazine, brand new magazine, called TV Guide, trumpeting the potential for new medium of television to permanently change the way politics works. A little more than a year later, the same senator, John F. Kennedy, would be elected as president of the United States. Thanks in no small part to his charismatic performance on the television debates with opponent Richard Nixon and the TV ad campaign that featured some very catchy jingles. Instead of platforms and beliefs of the politician, it started being about how they personally, visually looked their clothes, their hairstyle. I actually got to see part of this when I was in high school. How many of you remember Bill Clinton playing the saxophone on a late night show? What did that have to do with politics? Nothing. The whole pur purpose of it was to make people think he was cool and get the younger votes for him. He didn't talk about his policies on that. He talked about how he was just a normal person and wanted to relate to people and be... The same as them. But it, and it won his votes. Instead of that, God says we must choose a leader based on God's decision, not ours. Many of us have bad opinions. 
We make bad choices. And so why would we think we could collectively pick the perfect leader? God says, don't do that. You pick the one I have chosen. God goes on to say this, the king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. He must not accumulate large amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. The king must not try to make himself super wealthy. How is a king going to get super wealthy once he becomes king? How would he do that? Taxes. That's exactly right. In modern times, we call that taxes and lobbyists. That's how they build it up. A king who amasses a lot of wealth while in office is showing his true nature. I mean, really, right now, we could look at our political stance here and how many of our politicians start getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, making more money than their paychecks really say they should. When this happens, the leader whether king or politician, seeks to maintain or accumulate more wealth instead of seeking to provide and protect for the people. When they start getting rich, they want to get richer. And then they want to make sure they protect that wealth. And they'll step on anybody who can do it, if that's what they've got to do. And I'm not talking political parties here. I'm talking any person in absolute powers like that. You can look at all the, the... Look at Putin. What is he doing? Castro, what did he do? You can look at all these leaders and what did they do? The more they try to grab power and um, fortune for themselves, the more they fought to get more of that and to keep others from it. And then God drops this final line here. And this one really hits. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. When a man starts womanizing, when a man starts looking for another woman to conquer, he has lost his focus off of God and he has lowered his opinion of women. Not only has he taken his eyes off God, he has lowered what women are. He has lowered them to just be tools for his own pleasure. And when this happens, it shows that the leader is focused on lust. A leader, king, or other turns his heart towards satisfying himself rather than keeping his heart focused on God. David did all these wrong way. King Saul looked the part of a great king. He was tall, strong, handsome. And if there had been TV back then, the cameras would have loved him. He was head and, tallers, uh, head and shoulders taller than anybody, and yet, like many politicians today, Saul turned his attention away from God, away from his responsibilities, and started making sure he was only looking out for his own interest. David was the underdog. He wouldn't have won based on any debate or commercial, and yet God chose David. And what did David do with this position God called him to at times? David lived up to the description God gave him, a man after God's own heart. Other times, though, David resembled President Kennedy, who would just go chase any skirt. Because that's what he saw. Just something but little. He looked good at that point. He had good qualifications, but he kept getting his hands dirty. 
One thing we learn from the life and failures of David is sin is a culmination of a process, not a sudden act. Most people do not wake up one day and say, you know, um, I think I'm going to walk away from God today and just start living a life of sin. We don't mentally check like that. It's a gradual move. Like slowly turning the heat on the pot while the frog's in it. If you drop it in a boiling pot of water, it jumps out real quick because it knows this is bad. But you slowly do it, and it gets all comfortable. And then he starts croaking because that's warm. And then the bubbles hit, and he's like, that's good. And then all of a sudden, he's, he croaked. Okay? It's a gradual The move away from God begins with little changes, the dropping of helpful practices here and there like prayer, reading scripture, attending worship services, fellowship, and and joining with others, and accepting, and changes from that to accepting the compromising or wrongful actions or um, attitudes. It's gradual. I can tell you that the times of my darkest faith was when I wasn't going to church. It's just the truth of it. James chapter 1 says this, Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us to drag us away. Listen to that. Temptations come from your own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. It is so important for us to understand the process of our own lives and the lives of those around us that we love and to stop the slide away from God before it gives birth to death. King Saul and King David, when you really look at it, there's not much of a difference. But yet, thankfully, our God is merciful and forgiving. When David started repenting, God restored and blessed. If only Saul had done that. At any point, this side of death, we can stop what we're doing and turn to God in confession and repentance. Then we can receive that grace and mercy. Although, unfortunately, God may cleanse us and take away the guilt of our sins, but He doesn't take away the consequences the earthly consequences and scars of our sin. What is the most famous sin of David? Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba. The child's life, this is a little spoiler alert in case you didn't know, the child who was born out of that dies. The life was not spared of this innocent child. David and Bathsheba were forgiven, but the consequences still stood. We may turn to the Lord and God will transform us, but our children may still suffer because of the damages we have done. A lot of things that are going to happen to David are the result of him being dumb. And every time that he's being a good king, we can see just a beautiful crown. But when he starts being dumb, it starts breaking. It starts falling apart. But but it still looks okay, right? I mean, it's still a crown. But the more he does it, it's going to start unraveling. And we've got to make sure when we are living our life, we are looking at the proper kings in our life. 
We don't let sin rule us and let sin help us choose. Sin has a terrible wage. And that's the heartache of it all. The only hope we have is a daily dependence on the living God. God truly knows you. God understands you, and God will provide power to change and power to persevere, which is why God called us to follow Him, because everyone follows someone else. Everyone follows someone. Even the lone wolf type person. I I was just watching um, Lone Wolf McQuaid last night. Chuck Norris, greatest superhero of all time, has no power, but nobody can beat him. He's trying to do it all alone, but yet if you watch it, he followed other people. He had other people who were his mentors. Even the lone wolf, rogue American, truly follows someone else. You find any person, and they'll tell you about who they model their life after, who they model their um, ethics or their work style after, who they want to be like. Everyone follows Someone. We follow someone. We emulate. My heroes growing up were Spider Man, the Incredible Hulk, and my Uncle Jim. Spider Man was just this geek who could go and help people, and he was he was safe in that. The Incredible Hulk had anger, but he would never hurt a woman. He always protected the innocent. And my Uncle Jim was bald and fat. Look who I turned out to be like. My Uncle Jim, though, was a minister for over 50 years. And he messed up so many times in his life, in his ministry, in his home. He's still one of my heroes. I have a tote of his sermons in my basement. I've read through them at times when I'm watching my fish. I just start reading a sermon. We all follow someone. We all emulate someone. We all have a hero, a family member to look up to and we want to be like. We all follow someone. So my question this morning, who are you following? What is king in your life? What is it that you're allowing to lead you? What is it that you're allowing to have authority over you? Because so many times we follow these broken kings. We follow these kings that are just shattered and dismissive. We follow them. Don't we want to have a heart after God? That means we need to put away the false kings, put away these false notions. Finally, look to God and say, "To you, I submit." You're going to notice through the year, uh, through this next week. We even been doing it today in the songs we've been singing. There's a word that's going to keep popping up and repeating, and it's the word "king." Because even though we don't like monarchy here in America, when you are a Christian, you are part of a monarchy. You are part of a Christocracy. Where Christ is your King. And we need to start living that way. I have an authority figure over me. His will is my job. Whatever He says, I do it. 
And it's time the church does that. It's time the church pursues to have the heart after God. As we come to this, this closing, many of us are still struggling with who to follow, who we keep, keep giving a crown to that is ruling our lives and shouldn't be. And sometimes we give the crown to a sin, and we let that sin rule us. Sometimes we give it to a past hurt, and we allow that past hurt, that past problem, to control us. Sometimes we give it to people who don't deserve it. It's time to lay it down. Proclaim, God, you are my king. If you've never made that, will you make that today? If you are struggling with placing the crown on someone or something else, we'd love to just meet with you in the back and pray with you as somebody who also struggles with that. And we can go to the throne, the real throne room, meet the real king, and receive his grace and his mercy. If you need to do that, won't you come? Let's stand and let's go to God in prayer. Father, we praise you. We thank you that you are, you are our king, that you truly do rule and you reign, and yet you give us such grace and mercy. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you for truly loving us and showing us what a real king needs to be like and help us to follow and submit to you. Jesus, as we come to you, as we come to lift up our voices, let this be an anthem of who we see you as who we proclaim you to be in our own lives, to honor, to worship, to glorify, because you are our King. And in Jesus' name, amen.